everybody. It is Wednesday, October 11th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, we in this household are really swinging into this Wednesday. <laughs> I like what you did there, Mosh. I believe that you are referring to a swing, a baby swing that we gave you guys that hopefully is giving you a little bit of time back in your day. Yes. And keeping baby Olivia very comfortable. Yeah. For those of you uh, who've been listening, you know that uh, Jill and her husband and her entire family have so kindly uh, donated a whole number of baby <laughs> things to us. One of them recently arrived, the baby swing, an electronic baby swing. One of those things that's nice to have when, you know, you're just looking the, for the little one to get a few Zs in and not having to carry them around the apartment to get it. It is like magic. You feel bad. You're like, this feels like I, I know. I, I'm should cheating. I, yeah, I'm should cheating. I be really putting yeah. my baby in a swing that's rocking back and forth with music and a mobile that's turning? And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute. I could go make myself a cup of coffee or I can answer an email. And you're like, it's fine. It'll be I'm, fine. I'm discovering now, Jill, already as a, a very new parent, many of the memes coming true, including the like making yourself a cup of coffee, but then never drinking it. And you're always having a cold cup of coffee because like you've left it just to when it was ready because the baby needed you and then you can't get to it till three or four hours later. There is so much truth in all of those memes. Parenthood is definitely interesting. Uh, Mosh, let's get to some news here because there is still so much going on, especially in the Middle East. Now for the headlines here. Israel at war with Hamas, the latest from the region and what comes next. Plus, President Biden forcefully backing Israel and says that Americans have been killed and taken hostage by Hamas. Meanwhile, more healthcare workers protest their working conditions. This time, Walgreens pharmacy staff walk off the job. California becoming the first U.S. state to ban four potentially harmful chemicals in food. What it means for people who don't live in California. New charges against George Santos. Jill, your congressman continues <laughs> to take things to yet another level. <laughs> Plus, which brands are popular with teen shoppers? And the bigger question, Mosh, have we oldens ever heard of some of them? Test me. <laughs> Plus, Mosh has On This Day in History. We have a presidential theme today to On This Day in History. Jill, a big day for your favorite musician. And I'll give you a little history on Thomas Edison and the light bulb. Something might surprise you. Okay, let's start, though, with the latest out of the Middle East, where the death toll keeps climbing. Israel now says that more than a thousand people were killed in those attacks on Saturday as they continue to find more people murdered in the weekend terrorist attack. And it's now becoming clear that Hamas has taken about 150 Israelis hostage. Hamas says 900 people have died in Gaza as Israel has started to pummel Hamas sites across the territory. And more than 200,000 Palestinians have been displaced as the Israeli counterattack vowing to eliminate Hamas continues. So that's about 10% of the population. We also learned Tuesday that there are still 20 or more missing Americans after Saturday's attack. President Biden giving a forceful address to the nation. He said at least 14 Americans were killed 
and that some U.S. citizens, again, among the hostages, he described the Hamas attack as, quote, an act of unadulterated evil and said that Israel has a right to respond. You know, there are moments in this life, and I mean this literally, when the pure unadulterated evil is unleashed on this world. The people of Israel lived through one such moment this weekend. The bloody hands of the terrorist organization Hamas, a group whose stated purpose for being is to kill Jews. This was an act of sheer evil. Biden confirming Hamas is threatening to execute the hostages in what he described as, quote, a violation of every code of human morality. The Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, he is expected to travel to Israel today to, quote, engage our Israeli partners directly about the situation on the ground. Interestingly, Moshe, Biden uh, in his speech did not call for restraint from Israel, which is something that we have heard before whenever there has been an eruption in violence. Yeah, and it's not just President Biden, uh, this other Western powers as well. We haven't seen that in a very long time. But given what the West saw, right, these sadistic, horrific attack um, on Israeli civilians, effectively the message from the French, from the Germans, from the Brits, from the Australians, from the U.S. is Israel, do what you need to do to deal with the murders of more than a thousand of your citizens and that terrorist group that lives on your border. A warning here, though, uh, for these next 30 seconds, if you want to skip ahead, if you have kids in the car, because we want to mention one of the most horrific discoveries from Tuesday, and it speaks to why you're seeing the response from the Israelis uh, and what is about to unfold. The Israelis discovered in one of the kibbutzes, one of the towns uh, that was invaded by Hamas on Saturday, that at least 40 babies were killed in just one town, including some beheaded. It's beyond the pale and why for many Israelis, they're telling their government, do what it takes, eliminate this group. We, we cannot have this, the state of shock that the country is experiencing. And one of the reasons you're hearing President Biden and others uh, say that Hamas has adopted ISIS tactics. And uh, as the prime minister of Israel has said, well, the West eliminated ISIS. And if, they're, if Hamas is going to act like ISIS, we need to eliminate them too. And I just want to let that sink in a little bit. I mean, I don't want to let it sink in, especially, look, you have a new baby. I have two young kids. It is so painful to to hear these stories. I, I can't even imagine for the people who are living it. But I don't just want to gloss over it. I mean, these are these are war crimes. What we are witnessing and what happened is so beyond the pale, as you said. It, it's, it is unimaginable. The purposeful murder of civilians is terrorism by definition, right? But not just civilians, uh, you know, again, young children, the elderly, the disabled, the types of things that people go to prison for, go to war crimes tribunals for. The type of behavior, by the way, that we've seen in some instances by the Russians in Ukraine. And so already uh, some international bodies are trying to document the war crimes committed by Hamas here. Uh, and, you know, as people say, you know, there are calls to say, well, you know, everyone needs to de-escalate. And you're seeing that from certain parts of the Arab world, uh, China, Russia, etc. But for many Israelis, they're like, do you understand what just took place here? They're still finding more dead bodies days later. Uh, and the stories, we continue to learn more about what actually took place. Jill, I, I know we discussed it on yesterday's pod. You cited a number of the examples of the types of crimes that were committed on Saturday. 
Moshe, I think the other thing that's really important to mention as we talk about this is that Israel is such a small country. Uh, There are, what, 9 million people. It's about the population of New York City. Everyone is connected in some way. And so much focus of, of the world is focused on Israel and the Middle Eastern conflict that I think it conflates how big the area is. But when you look at a map, that's when you realize how small of an area we're actually talking about between Israel, the West Bank, Gaza. It is just such a small, compact area um, that these people are all living really like feet apart from each other. To carry through your New York City example here, Jill, it's like uh, New York City is Israel and there's a terror group in New Jersey just across the river that's you know, came across on Saturday and murdered a thousand people, raped people, kidnapped people, etc. Israel's like, well, we need to do something about our neighbors across the border who committed war crimes against us on Saturday. So with all that said, Israel continues to expand its mobilization of reservists to 360,000 now that are moving towards the south. It came as Israel has now regained effective control over the areas that Hamas invaded on Saturday. The big question right now is whether Israel will launch a ground assault into Gaza. That's the 25-mile strip of land that's uh, nestled in there between Israel, Egypt, and the Mediterranean Sea. It's home to 2.3 million people. It's been governed by Hamas, the terror group, since 2007, so about 16 years now. The response so far, significant, but similar to previous attacks. But Israel promises to take things to the next level. They've been pounding Gaza with deadly airstrikes, destroying dozens of buildings. Uh, Hamas continues to fire rockets and missiles into Israel uh, and fight back. Tank units, uh, Israeli tank units, have been sent to the south. That's all fueling the speculation that Israel will, in earnest, begin a ground invasion here. Keep in mind, this ain't the first round of fighting between Israel and Hamas and Gaza. There's been four rounds already between 08 and 2021. They all ended inconclusively with Hamas battered, but still in control of Gaza. This time, though, Israel promising to decimate them, to eliminate them, saying they have gone too far. We tried to think that they might be a responsible entity. And, you know, based on the war crimes that are committed against babies, against the elderly, the kidnapping, that's over. The question is, how far do the Israelis need to go here? They're going for total victory. That's unachievable unless you conduct a full-on ground invasion into Gaza. That would require a complete reoccupation of Gaza, something the Israelis have not been looking to do, wanting to do, able to do. And yet here we are. So there's a short-term thing, which is save the Israeli hostages, right? By the way, Americans, other internationals that uh, were taken hostage, save them eliminate Hamas's firepower, but then long-term, who now governs this piece of land? What we're really talking about here is regime change that the Israelis are looking for, which is not a couple-day operation. It's not a couple-week operation. Uh, This would be a very significant thing, and uh, it means that Israel has to very much decide right now what its mission is uh, and keep that consistent, because in many cases, whether it's Israel, the U.S., etc., in war, when you don't have a clear mission, victory becomes much more challenging. And the fighting also threatens to become this wider regional conflict, which could mean Hezbollah could get involved. Hezbollah is a terrorist organization. They're based in Lebanon. Hezbollah fought a war with Israel back in 2006. So will they get involved? They did say in a statement that they're closely following the, quote, important developments in the Palestinian situation with great interest. Hezbollah thought to be even stronger, more organized and better equipped than Hamas. So their involvement 
would make this a two-front war and potentially a lot more complicated. Yeah, just to jump in there, Jill, Hezbollah, Hamas, what do they have in common? Well, they both have the same godparent, godfather, Iran. Iran funds both of them. Iran provides both of them weapons. And Iran is the country that they're both looking to for guidance here. That is why you continue to see the U.S., Israel, and other Western powers say, no one else get involved here. And a lot of that language, while explicitly they're not saying Iran, they mean Iran. Iran, do not escalate things further uh, and create a regional war here. So please keep Hezbollah down and keep this isolated to Israel and Hamas. And that's the big question we have in the coming days. As for what's happening on the ground in Gaza, hospitals there running out of supplies to treat people who have been wounded. The only power plant is on the brink of a shutdown. The Israeli government, as we mentioned, is engaged in a total siege on the territory. They were urging Palestinians to leave the area, but the sole remaining access from Egypt, that shut down Tuesday after Israeli airstrikes hit near the border crossing. Yeah, and we should note the Egyptians are like, we don't want to take people in right now, and we're pissed at the Israelis uh, for suggesting that Palestinians leave Gaza for Egypt. By the way, that border crossing shut down because Hamas, which has also built tunnels there, was using it to funnel in weapons. And that's a tragic thing for the Palestinian people here who suffer consistently and continually with the terrorists that govern the Gaza Strip. A new tactic here that Israel is now warning Gazans uh, to evacuate entire neighborhoods to avoid devastation and then inflicting devastation on those neighborhoods. This could be a prelude to a ground offensive that Israel basically clearing area for them to invade. Israel has typically gone building by building. Now they're going neighborhood by neighborhood. And the issue you face is that Hamas embeds itself in residential buildings. It embeds its weapons, its missiles, its units within residential buildings, partially using the Palestinian populace as a human shield of sorts. So you're seeing that play out, and that's something to watch, because as these casualty numbers come up, as you continue to see these devastating images now of Palestinian civilians suffering at the hands of the counter-assault, what does that mean for potentially bringing in Hezbollah, bringing in Iran, uh, lighting up uh, the Arab world, upset at those images of Palestinian suffering. In particular, what Hamas is hoping for is a multi-front battle against Israel, particularly from their Palestinian brothers and sisters in the West Bank. Uh, and so far, you've seen some protests, some skirmishes in the West Bank, but nothing major so far. And that's something Hamas is hoping to inspire. And what they do know is that images of Palestinian suffering tend to to do that. Uh, notable number, by the way, Jill, before we leave this for the day, the bodies of roughly 1,500 Hamas fighters were found on Israeli territory, according to the Israeli Defense Forces. Again, that means that potentially 2,000 plus terrorists were able to invade Israel in an unprecedented uh, situation on Saturday. And it's not clear whether those numbers overlap with the Palestinian death count. Either way, an unspeakable unfathomable situation. The fact that they're able to find 1,500 terrorists just dead in Israel, because of course, many of them were able to return alive to the Gaza Strip. And when you're talking about those types of numbers, the fact that this was undetected by Israeli intelligence, even that much more shocking. And I realize that this is a discussion for another day and an investigation I'm sure is going on in Israel right now to figure out what went wrong. But how they didn't pick up on any sort of chatter 
and there are reports that they were practicing and rehearsing, it just becomes that much more incredible uh, that nothing was picked up. Yeah, Hamas has mock Israeli towns where they apparently were staging rehearsals. Also, it's really hard to keep a secret amongst a few people. How do you keep a secret among several thousand terrorists? And I'll add one more thing. As Israel potentially invades Gaza here, given the intelligence failure that they saw on Saturday, what else do the Israelis not know about what's going on with Hamas? Or was it sort of a one-trick pony? And that'll be one of the big questions uh, that certainly will sow doubt within the Israelis, which is, what else don't we know about what Hamas has been up to? what their capabilities are, especially as we leave Israel and go back into their home territory. What we didn't mention is that even on Tuesday, they still had a supply of missiles that they were continuing to fire. So the question is, what is their stockpile? Where is it? (laughs) All of this catching Israel by surprise. All right, we have plenty of news coming up after the break, but we do want to mention that this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. And we're really excited to have them on board, given how much we talk about the importance of mental health on this pod. Mental health, especially important as we deal with topics like the one we were just talking about that are just so heavy. But getting over that threshold to talk to a therapist can be tough for some people, depending on how you grow up and your view of therapy. But talking to somebody, I know that it has helped me in my life through things that I've had to work through. And that is why we are so glad to have BetterHelp as a sponsor here at Mo News. And we have a really incredible deal for the Mo News community. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online and it is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Mosh today to get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Mosh, M-O-S-H. Time now for the speed read from the Washington Post. Thousands of Walgreens pharmacy staff across the country are walking off work this week, alleging that poor working conditions are putting employees and patients at risk. The walkout could impact hundreds of stores throughout today. It is not clear whether any pharmacies have actually stopped operations. Pharmacists, technicians, and support staff claim that increased demands on understaffed teams, such as administering vaccines while battling hundreds of backlogged prescriptions, have become untenable and are impeding their ability to do their jobs responsibly. The organizer said, quote, when you're a pharmacist, a missed letter or a number that's wrong in a prescription could kill somebody. Organizers are talking about the fact that all this pressure that they're having of administering the extra vaccines, short staffing, making it impossible to do their jobs responsibly. You know, we put a lot of responsibility on pharmacists. I think we take it for granted that when you go in there, that you're going to get the drug that you need, that they understand the side effects, they understand what other conditions you have. And there's a lot there. And in one instance, one of the organizers has been saying that a regional leader at Walgreens who visited their store as he was juggling thousands of prescription backlogs told him to stop what he was doing and instead focus on vaccination appointments because there's better profit to Walgreens from the vaccinations. There's apparently also been an uptick in violence from customers who've been frustrated by these delays that poor pharmacists are having to deal with. The company, for its part, tells the Washington Post that it recognizes the last few years have been, quote, unprecedented and a very challenging time. They say we're making significant investments in pharmacist wages, hiring bonuses to attract and retain talent in harder to staff locations. 
As far as employees here, they're requesting the company hire even more pharmacy staff, establish mandatory training hours, offer transparency in how payroll hours are assigned to stores, and give advance notice when staff will be cut or when a position opens. Organizers say the actions were inspired by a pharmacy employee walkout at a CVS in Kansas City a few weeks ago. Walgreens employees, just like CVS, are not unionized. So these efforts actually came together on a subreddit online for pharmacy staff. Jill, uh, there's a number of pharmacists in the Mo News community. We often hear from them, and many say the last place they want to work is a chain pharmacy because of the conditions, because of the pressure, because of the wages, and it's only gotten worse in recent years. I had to pick up a prescription for my daughter the other day, and our pharmacy is so short-staffed that at 3 p.m., we went to go get it, and there was a sign that just said, sorry, emergency, pharmacy closed, we'll be back tomorrow. And we're like, no, we like we really need her medicine. <laughs> she, she was really sick. Uh, luckily, I was able to call it into a different pharmacy, but that just tells you how incredibly short-staffed they are. From CNN, California Governor Gavin Newsom has signed a landmark law aimed at banning red dye number three and other potentially harmful food additives and consumer goods, making California the first state in the country to forbid the use of the ingredients found in many popular candies, drinks and more. Newsom's move brings the U.S. slightly closer to a food environment like that of the European Union, where these chemicals are already banned, quote, because of scientific studies that have demonstrated significant public health harms, including increased risk of cancer, behavioral issues in children, harm to the reproductive system and damage to the immune system. The California Food Safety Act, as it's called, prohibits the manufacture, sale or distribution of food products in California containing red dye number three, potassium bromate, brominated vegetable oil, or propyl paraben. I think the rule is when you can't pronounce it, it's probably uh, not healthy <laughs> for you. <laughs> or maybe I've just heard that on TikTok or social media, Mosh. Joe, uh, we should be cautious. Some of these you definitely should not be ingesting. Some of these just uh, components that are not harmful to you. We don't want to be in the business of telling people like, if you can't pronounce it, you can't eat it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We are pretty advanced these days, but it is interesting to see California make this move. Yeah, the potassium bromate, uh, apparently that's added to baked goods to help dough strengthen and rise higher. In some beverages, brominated vegetable oil emulsifies a citrus flavoring, preventing separation. And propyl parabens used for food preservation. Nearly 3,000 products use red dye number three as an ingredient, including sweets like Skittles, Nerds, and certain gummies, protein shakes, instant rice and potato products, and boxed cake mixes. This is according to the Environmental Working Group's Eat Well Guide. So it's an interesting move here by California, which tends to be pretty progressive on these things and will often be a leading indicator of where the country will go on a number of things. We've seen California be a first mover here. Usually Europe goes first, then California, and then the rest of the U.S. Red dye number three actually was banned from cosmetic use 30 years ago by the FDA due to concerns about it being a carcinogen. But it's still used in the popular candies you mentioned, Skittles, Nerds, also candies like Peeps as well as other foods, cookies, colored drinks, etc. The governor of California pointed to the Europeans saying that is the proof that the food industry is capable of maintaining product lines while complying with different public health laws because they've changed the law in Europe. And yet, you know, Skittles and these other candies have adapted 
to those European laws. Now, this bill won't be implemented until 2027. So the companies have a few years to change their ingredients and comply with the law. Uh, the governor is saying this gives them significant time to avoid these harmful chemicals and find a better way to manufacture their goods. One thing to note here, because of the size of California's economy, this law may affect the food industry across the country. You know, you have nearly 40 million Californians. Basically, one in 10 Americans lives in California. So the fact that they're making this change, uh, you know, if you're producing one of these candies, are you going to basically make two lines, one for California and one for everyone else? Or are you going to just adapt to the California law for everybody? So we might all benefit. Uh, red dye number three might be gone for all of us in 2027 uh, as these manufacturers figure out what to do next. It's similar to how Europe's laws regarding the tech industry impact us as well, uh, because you see these companies like Apple that aren't going to design two different products, one for people in Europe and one for everybody else. Yeah, you can think if you've gotten a new iPhone 15 and they're using the USB-C charger now, which is the same one you use for your laptop and iPad, you can thank the Europeans for that, who are like, why are you making people buy all this stuff? The lightning cable, the USB-C cable, et cetera. And so the Europeans or the Californians, sometimes you can, you can thank them for making things slightly more consumer friendly. From the New York Times, federal prosecutors on Tuesday filed a significant array of additional charges against New York Congressman George Santos accusing him of new criminal schemes like stealing the identities and credit card details of donors to his campaign. The new accusations were made in a 23-count superseding indictment that laid out how Santos had charged his donors' credit cards repeatedly without their authorization. (laughs) (laughs) This is a congressman. This is a congressman who's like, cool, I got your credit card number. Let me steal some of your money. Just when you think he couldn't get any more corrupt. (laughs) You donated this campaign and he's like, I'll take more where that's from. Santos then distributed the money to his and other candidates campaigns and to his own bank account, of course. Naturally. Yes. (laughs) The new indictment filed added 10 charges against Santos, including conspiracy to commit offenses against the United States wire fraud, aggravated identity theft, access device fraud, false statements to the FEC, and falsifying records to obstruct the commission. Jill, what's the ration like on uh, <laughs> Long Island right now in your third district? <laughs> Actually, Tom Swazi, who was a former congressman, uh, former county executive here, just announced that he is going to run to try to unseat George Santos. Swazi is a Democrat, but he said he's going to be running. I imagine you might not have a tough time given that now Santos faces 23 counts and potential prison time here. This updated indictment with the additional counts comes just a few days after his campaign treasurer, her name was Nancy Marks, she had pleaded guilty to a felony count of conspiracy to defraud the U.S. and admitted to her role in reporting a fictional $500,000 loan. She had a co-conspirator in that allegation. His name, George Santos. She's like, yeah, we conspired together on it. And so we're getting at this point, but let's make it very clear. These accusations against Santos, the first-term congressman, are very different from typical corruption cases that we cover with politicians. Many of those are very intricate quid pro quos where you've got to try to prove stuff because the politicians know that, you know, these are crimes and they try to find ways around it. Complex legal questions about bribe, etc. Santos, he's just a run-of-the-mill grifter. (laughs) 
Like he's doing very basic <laughs> stuff. Like let me steal people's credit card numbers. Among the things Santos did in this updated indictment, he stole the credit card number to transfer 11,000 to his own bank account. He swindled $50,000 from two other donors using a fake nonprofit. He then used the money to buy designer goods and settle personal debts. And apparently, as part of this indictment, it reads on and on. Frankly, it's a very good read. He faked being wealthy to impress Republican leaders, reported a fictitious $500,000 loan, that's the one we mentioned, to get their financial support, made up tens of thousands of dollars in donations to give the impression of political success, and then was taking donations, the actual ones, and then stealing more money. I mean, what? And the man is still a sitting congressman. I mean, that's the amazing thing. You know, we're waiting right now to see what Republicans do when it comes to their next Speaker of the House. You know who still has a vote in that? George Santos. He's still a sitting member of Congress. He votes on all those big issues that you care about as constituents. And uh, he's one of 435 members of Congress. And you forgot to mention he lied about pretty much everything oh, in his history. His entire biography, including where he name. worked. <laughs> His name, his his mother, where she was born, the fact that she was not a Holocaust survivor. I mean, this man is a... He's like the talented Mr. Ripley, kind of. I was going to say, like, I don't want to give him credit, but, like, it's amazing what he's pulled off. <laughs> it's quite the coup. All right, from CNBC, a look at teen shopping trends. Teens are notoriously fickle, but the group is also often on the leading edge of many trends that the rest of us eventually adopt. So teens' self-reported annual spending is actually down about 1% compared to last fall, down 4% from the spring, according to Piper Sandler's biannual teen survey released on Tuesday. So male teens, interestingly, they spent 11% more than last fall. Females are spending about 8% less. Nike is still the favorite brand for apparel and footwear for both male and female teens for the 12th year running. When it comes to clothes after Nike, American Eagle and Lululemon are second and third, while Shine moved up to number four, overtaking H&M. Teens are also putting less money into footwear, but males did outspend females on shoes by about 80 bucks a year. Converse held the spot for the second most favorite brand behind Nike. Of course, Nike owns Converse. Adidas held the number three spot and New Balance gained two percentage points to become the fourth favorite brand, surpassing Vans, which is now in the number five spot. Crocs and Crocs owned Hey Dude, coming at number six and number seven, respectively. Hey Dude, remember that show, Nickelodeon, back in the early 90s? I remember the show from Nickelodeon, which ages us, but I've never heard of the brand Hey Dude, have you? I have not, no. When teens were asked what the top fashion trends were, leggings, Lululemon held the top spot for females, followed by crop tops and jeans. When asked about top trends, males said Nike slash Jordans as number one. Athletic wear was second and baggy and saggy pants was third. Those are back, huh? Hoodies fell to fifth from second place and short shorts popped up at number nine as a top trend for males in school. Short shorts for men getting trendy. Interesting. Jill, back in the day in the 90s when we were teens, that would not have been a thing. We had those like extra long <laughs> shorts that were basically... They were basically um, pants. Capri pants. Yeah, yeah basically capri <laughs> Which, by the way, had a moment there for men, capri pants, if I recall my high school days correctly in the late 90s. So this group, by the way, teens, this is the latter edge of Gen Z. This is the youngest group of Gen Z because already we have alpha generation coming in, which uh, anyone born after 2010 and they're becoming teenagers soon. So these are the youngest of the Gen Zers that were getting a sense of their style. 
But that said, I'm not shocked at all of these. You know, it's like these things come around, right? Leggings, baggy pants, Crocs, Vans. Remember, Vans had a skater moment back then in the in the mid 90s remember vans i still wear vans <laughs> jill vans never went away for jill everybody no some follow-up numbers here teens are spending just over 300 dollars a year on beauty that's up 23 percent from last year the jump was led by 33 percent increase in cosmetics that's the highest spending level in a number of years in cosmetics elf or is it elf Jill remains the top makeup brand. Yo no say, Mosh. <laughs> Selena Gomez's Rare Beauty held the number two spot. Maybelline, that's one I remember. Maybe it's Maybelline. Uh, that's in third. Skincare spending also up big. Some brands there owned by L'Oreal, owned by uh, Estee Lauder, are doing well, including The Ordinary and La Roche-Posay. I think that's right. Fragrance spending grew 14% over last year, so they still like the perfumes and the colognes. Jill, I feel like I had the Abercrombie or Eddie Bauer cologne back in my teen days. I had the Calvin Klein one that was like unisex. <laughs> I don't know if you had that. Aqua de Gio. I feel like Aqua de Gio was one that I had as well. Tracar Noir. I, I feel like all yes. the guys had that. But if you talk to any parent of a teen or, or a tween girl, they will tell you that their daughter probably has better skincare products than they do. It is the thing now. I, they watch these TikTok videos or YouTube videos on how to apply creams and yeah. all this sort of skincare. And they go shopping at Sephora and they they really take such good care of their skin. My nine-year-old niece had a slumber party and I asked her what they did and she's like, skincare? Then I'm like, what? Like, what, what, what do you mean? You have perfect skin. I don't understand. Jill, they have social media. Back then, you just had microfiche at your local library for your cosmetic tips. <laughs> You're really going? <laughs> Mic <laughs> Microfilm and microfiche. You remember those things? Oh, man. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know if anyone was looking for cosmetic tips on microfiche. <laughs> I guess you had like Seventeen magazine. Yes, that's that where was you're going. Yeah. <laughs> but if you want an archived copy of Seventeen magazine, you had to go to your local library and look it up on microfiche. Oh, God, um, Jill. One other note here, and this probably won't surprise anybody. They also surveyed them on the brands that they like the best. Uh, I was looking at their social media numbers in terms of where teens are right now, what their favorite brands are in terms of social media. TikTok, number one. Snapchat, number two. Instagram, number three. Probably not a surprise to any parent of a teen or any of you teens listening on your way to school this morning. All right, Jill and teens listening, we're about to educate you on a bit of history because now it's time for On This Day in History, on this October 11th, 10, 11, 23. We're going to be in 1869. Thomas Edison today, a very young Thomas Edison, filed a patent for his first invention. It was an electric machine that was used for counting votes for the U.S. Congress. However, Congress never bought it. They didn't like it. But he did get a patent for it. Now, he would file for hundreds of patents just about 11 years later. Of course, Thomas Edison would famously file for a patent for his light bulb, which he gets a lot of credit for. Though it is a misnomer, Jill, we all learned growing up that Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. The light bulb had already been invented. He was like the 22nd or 23rd person to work on the light bulb. He just perfected the light bulb. So just a, a small note there that while he did patent the light bulb, that he wasn't the first. He was just working on various iterations. It was a race to figure out uh, the best filament to make it work. 
All right, a bit of presidential history. On this day in 1884, Anna Eleanor Roosevelt was born in New York City. She was orphaned by the time she was 10 years old. Her mother died of diphtheria. Her father took his own life. She was the niece, by the way, of President Teddy Roosevelt. So she was born Eleanor Roosevelt, the niece of Teddy Roosevelt. After being orphaned, she was raised by her grandmother. She would then go on to marry her distant cousin, Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, there were basically two Roosevelt's uh, distant relatives. The ones in Long Island, the Teddy Roosevelt clan, those are the Republicans. The Democratic Roosevelt's up in upstate New York, that was the FDR Roosevelt's. So she would marry her distant cousin, FDR. And then, of course, go on to become first lady, a huge activist, uh, the first delegate to the United Nations, the head of the UN Human Rights Commission. And Jill, as some of our premium listeners will find out in an upcoming podcast on the members feed, she had a very challenging relationship with her mother-in-law. FDR's mother was quite overbearing, Jill. She actually tried to intervene and block the marriage and send Franklin to Europe so they wouldn't get married. Uh, she would constantly intervene in their affairs. She hated Eleanor for a while. FDR's mother actually would visit the White House and like mess with FDR and Eleanor, and she just couldn't handle her mother. Like what? Like what would she do? <laughs> She just would constantly intervene being like, Eleanor is not doing the right thing. She's not raising her kids right. You know, we, we don't like uh, how you are decorating the house. Right. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff. By the way, when FDR gets inaugurated in 1933, you know who's on the cover of Time magazine that week? Not President Roosevelt, his mom. Like that was how much attention she was getting. My son, Franklin, uh, turned into a whole series there. So anyway, Eleanor Roosevelt, famous in her own right. And just like us or some of us, I love my mother-in-law, uh, had problems with her mother-in-law. Sticking with presidential history here, happy 48th wedding anniversary to the Clintons. On this day in 1975, William Jefferson Clinton and Hillary Rodham got married in Arkansas. They had met just a couple years previous while they were both students at Yale Law School. They'd both worked on the George McGovern campaign for president. He would go on to lose to Richard Nixon. Of course, one of them becomes president at age 46 in 1992. She would become the first lady. She would go on, of course, to become the senator from New York, secretary of state, and the Democratic presidential nominee in 2016. And it has been a blissful 48 years. <laughs> right. no, no issues between those two. <laughs> that marriage, uh, they've, they've overcome a lot, but that's a separate podcast. Uh, and finally, here on this day in history, in space history in 1984, American astronaut Catherine Sullivan became the first woman to conduct a spacewalk. That mission actually was carrying two women astronauts, Sullivan and Sally Ride. All right, as we typically do, we end with a bit of music here. On this day, 52 years ago, John Lennon's Imagine was released as a single, an iconic song of hope and peace. We all could heed those lyrics this week, especially arguably the best known work of his solo career post Beatles. All right, just a few years later, another big piece of music history, Jill. The epic single Born to Run became Bruce Springsteen's first ever top 40 hit on this day. In 1975, it marked the start of his transition from a little-known cult figure to an international superstar. He was just 26 at the time. Tramps like us, Mosh. Baby, we were born to run. Jill, would that be your number one musician? Is Bruce number one in your book? Or is it Madonna? No, Bruce. I think Bruce is my favorite overall. And they haven't quite been around as long, but I happen to love the Lumineers as well. Not, <laughs> not classics yet, but I, I love the Lumineers. All right, we will try to work them into a future on this day in history. 
And finally, also on the same day Born to Run becomes Bruce's first big hit, the TV sketch comedy show, you might have heard of it, Saturday Night Live, debuted on NBC, becoming a landmark on American television. Lauren Michaels, who's still there after all these years, SNL is now 48 years old. Jill, do you have a favorite comedian or era of SNL? I think it was the Amy Poehler, Tina Fey era. I Mm. still think that they were hysterical. You missed it, though. Uh, Last week, I was talking about how next season is actually going to be SNL's 50th anniversary season, and they've already started to sell commercials for it. It's amazing the longevity of that show, you know, how it's uh, remained relevant through certain eras. I mean, SNL, for those of you who are familiar, has had some great periods and some periods of just like, you know, you turn it on for a season, like there's nothing funny anymore. Uh, but there were certain groups of comedians. You know, I think Tina Fey and Amy Poehler was a great era there. But I will say that for me, it was that 90s group of Dana Carvey, Mike Myers, Chris Farley, Adam Sandler. And then you had Chris Rock there at the time uh, going into the Will Ferrell era, the cheerleaders, like, you know, all those various sketches. I just thought that was they had such a powerhouse lineup there. Uh, through the lot 90s and then they sort of go by the wayside but then they come back you know of course they had jimmy fallon as a writer conan o'brien you go through the era of snl it's really incredible and then even people who would eventually make it but didn't quite make it on snl uh like julia louis dreyfus was briefly on snl in the 80s of course you know we would see her really explode oh i didn't realize uh, years that. later yeah so there's these eras especially in the 80s there where basically you had eddie murphy as like the dominant person joe piscopo and like but it was like slim pickings for a while until you get to that late 80s group i i'm realizing now as i speak jill i uh spent a lot of time (laughs) in my childhood i would rent snl seasons at blockbuster and watch them on vcr don't ask me why you just keep peeling that onion moshe and 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 the more we learn about you Jill, I'll save my thoughts on Chevy Chase and the late 70s group for another time. (laughs) All right. Uh, You know what? I'm glad we were able to have some laughs uh, on this podcast because the news has been so heavy. Uh, Thinking about everybody with family and loved ones in the Middle East uh, who are impacted by what is happening right now. Unfortunately, it does not look like things are going to be wrapping up anytime soon. So just uh, we're in for a, a rough few weeks, even longer. Yeah, rest assured, we'll be here with you. And we understand if you need to, do need to take a break, uh, we actually posted on our Instagram feed, Jill, on the Monu's Instagram feed yesterday, a way to limit your social media feed so you don't actually get all the content, um, all of this uh, terrible content, which obviously, you know, people, information is important and you need to be aware of what's going on. But totally understand if you need that mental health break from all of it. And we'll be here when you're ready to come back, if you do need to take a break from all of it. I was actually thinking I might need to take a break. You know, even, even I'm not, and I even like 10 hours, you know, even like 12 hours yeah. or something, and then tap back in when I have to start working on the podcast again. But just constantly having these images in your feed, it, it is genuinely mentally exhausting. And unfortunately, there's also a lot of misinformation going around. So, you know, there's a lot of like, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? And and then, you know, within an hour, hour and a half, sometimes we try to fact check them too. We're like, actually, that's not actually a thing. Or unfortunately, that is a thing. So it's important not to, you know, if you can, 
uh, take a break from it because it can feel all consuming. Yes. So we will thank you, George Santos, I guess, for being the gift that keeps on giving here. <laughs> George Santos, <laughs> thank you for stealing your donor's credit card numbers and giving us a break from terrible, terrible news. All right. Uh, a big thank you to everyone for listening to the Mo News podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the app store. All right, everyone. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.